Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for tonight, for the body that is gathered together, known as Vero Bible Fellowship. And Lord, we thank you for those that you send our way that maybe they're not part of in terms of uh, the family of BBF, but they have been coming to our church. They've been visiting, or they, they are friends of BBF, and we're just thankful for them. We pray that you bless them richly, mm -hmm. that you would tonight, Lord, by the Holy Spirit of God, fill us to the measure of your fullness, that we would understand and have knowledge of the word, and that the knowledge of the word would grow us in grace, grow us in the character of Christ, that we would be witnesses in our community. So, Lord, let the, let the word do its work tonight, in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Well, we've worked our way to the mid, midway point of this book called Revelation, and chapter 11 uh, doesn't disappoint, my goodness. Tonight, uh, you know, the last couple uh, times we've met, we've been able to cover at least one chapter at a time. And, and tonight, though, uh, just tonight, I'm not saying this is the future, but I don't think we're going to get past verse 1 and 2. Um, but that's okay. Next week, we'll probably cover all of it, okay, the rest of the chapter. Chapter 11 has several things that are very vital, uh, vital to uh, for us to know about future events. And so let's just go ahead and let God lead us tonight. Uh, before we get into this, though, uh, by way of reminder, let's take a moment and review the content that we've already covered in Revelation. We've already covered 10 chapters. And uh, this book is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. If anybody tells you different, they're they're off base. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation uh, apocalypsis. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ and the revealing of the things that Christ is going to be doing. And that's what we're seeing here. This book uh, is, uh, Jesus is the main character. He is the central theme. Revelation focuses on his second coming and the things that happen before his second coming, and the things that happen after his second coming. I was talking with uh, John and Ani earlier, and uh, we were talking about Revelation and how many different views uh, that Christians take regarding Revelation. There are di several different views. I've got a wonderful book uh, written by the guy, I can't remember his last name, Gregory or Greg is his last name. And he actually took all the main views on Revelation and took the entire book and broke down verse by verse what each of those views believe that verse means and substantiate them from other scriptures. And so what you come out after you read all of the heat, this book is probably that thick, I've read the whole thing. What you walk away from is this idea that whoever, whatever position you hold, you're probably not 100% accurate in what you think. Because these other groups, they are also substantiating from the word of God their position. And there are things in the Bible that are black and white. Uh, there's just no getting around it. Jesus is the atonement. Amen. Amen. Jesus is Messiah. That's not debatable. That's not gray. Amen. Revelation is gray. And so you have, a, you have some people, though, in the Christian community who choose to see Revelation. They want to be on the planning committee for the return of Jesus. <laughs> they're they're going to tell you how it's going to happen, and this is how, and no other way, and what you believe is wrong, what I believe is right. They're on the planning committee. Others of us are on the welcoming committee for Jesus Amen. Christ. 
We're not as concerned that we be right in everything. What, what we're concerned with is that we take the things that are spoken and given to us that God says will be a blessing if you read it, and we take it in our hearts, but we don't walk around with an arrogance thinking that we know everything there is to know in the book of Revelation, because we don't. We don't. Many times you will hear me as I'm teaching the, the book of Revelation, I'll say, this is plausible. Doesn't mean that it's going to happen that way, but from Scripture, as I look at all of Scripture, I think it's plausible that that's what he was saying or what he means by this. So that, that, that's just real important that we lay that foundation once again. But let me say this to you. Why is Jesus coming again? Well, there's two reasons. Write this down. This is not black and or this is not gray. This is black and white. Number one, to judge the wicked. Jesus is returning to judge the wicked. Number two, he's going to reward the righteous. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple, and very profound. He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to reward the righteous. This book provides us with the events leading up to his return and the events following his return. And I'm speaking, when I say that, of the great tribulation, which will lead up to his return, and then the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign, which will occur after his return. We began this study in Revelation one year, one year ago, not today, last week. Isn't that something? The last week of August was the first Sunday that we were in Revelation on a Thursday night. And so we've been in, in, in one year and we're halfway home. That's not too bad. That's not too bad. In some churches, that's dragging it out. In other churches, you're just getting started. Uh, you take a John Piper or a Steve Lawson or a John MacArthur. Man, one year, you've covered maybe three chapters. Those guys just live there, man. And it's good teaching. It's rich. Uh, but we're, we're kind of in between. There's other churches, they'll do a jet tour through Revelation. You know, they have the whole thing done in seven weeks. How? I don't know. Okay? We're not going to do that. All right. So, we began this study in Revelation one year ago, and chapters 1 through 3, just in review now, if you want to write it down, chapters 1 through 3, we dealt with a book, well, I'm sorry, with a look at Christ's work in and among his church. We saw the seven churches, right? And Christ in and among the lampstands. And he was ministering, doing his work. Those churches are representative of every kind of church you have on the earth today. Chapters 4 and 5 gave us a vision of the preparation for, uh, that's going on in heaven for the coming judgment on the earth. We actually got a chance to see the throne room of God and what was happening and, and actually what triggered the beginning of the judgments of God to be, become manifest as the, 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 the worthy lamb, the only one who's worthy, came forward, took the scroll out of the hand, right hand of God and opened the, all seven seals, began to open the scroll. Chapter 6 is where we begin to see the unfolding of judgments as the Lord prepared to come and take the earth and the universe that is rightfully his. So the worthy lamb is taking ownership. And chapter 6, you begin to see the unfolding judgments of that. This flow of events that's, that starts in chapter 6 is, is related to the scroll that the Lamb of God that was slain took from the Father's hand. So as each, each seal is broken in that, in that scroll, another layer of judgment is released. Another layer of activity in preparation for the return of Christ is released. 
And, and then Christ began to break open the seals, as you guys all know, and we've already covered the first six seals. And when we reach the seventh seal, uh, with its opening of future judgments, actually when we open the sixth seal, or the seventh seal, all of a sudden now we see seven trumpets. So we go from seals to trumpets. These, these the heralding, the proclaiming. A, a trumpet would be played at the beginning of a processional when the king enters. A, a, a trumpet is played as the, as the army is ready to go to battle. It's a, it's a shout of victory. It's a shout of confidence. Uh, and God is actually allowing seven trumpets to blow to announce the time of judgment on the earth. Okay? And, and uh, so we studied that. We see seven trumpets and the judgment list of those, 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 those trumpets. Now we're already gone, we've gone through the first six of those seven trumpets. And so to quantify it, we've already covered the seven seals and six trumpets. And now we're about here, uh, actually it started in chapter 10. We're about to hear the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And when this seventh trumpet is blown, there will be seven bold judgments that now come forth. And I want you to think, we say, why did he call them bowls? Well, why did he call them seals? Why did he call them trumpets? Each has a significant meaning. The reason for bowl is like a, like a saucer. And what's going to happen, how, the, how the, the last seven judgments are different than the first 14, is that the judgment of God is in these seven bowls. And he takes the bowl and he turns it over on the earth. And what happens in the seven, judge, uh, seven uh, bowls is fury. The absolute fury of God is released, and it happens rapidly. When you release a bowl, everything in it comes out at the same time. And one bowl after another, quickly in succession, fall. And so it goes from bad to worse. So you start out with the seals. Things are moving along. Each seal, you know, something new happens. And then the trumpets, things are speeding up. They're a little more intense. And then you finally get to the bowls. And I mean, it is all out hell on earth as God releases his fury and his anger and his judgment. And so that's what we're about to come into, okay? Um, but what's interesting, when you come to the seventh bowl, right before the seventh bowl, or the seventh trumpet, or the seventh seal is given, um, it's as if God gives a little reprieve. He allows you to catch your breath. You've had six judgments in three different series. And, and at the end of the sixth, he's about to go with the seventh, and it's even worse in the first six. But before he allows it to happen, he, he brings things to a stop for a second. And he somehow finds a way to profess, to, to, to pronounce grace. He, he gives time for people to make adjustments. For the believer, those who are on the earth during the tribulation, and the reason they're there is because they're getting saved. The greatest outpouring of the gospel will happen in the tribulation. And those who come to Christ, they need to see the reprieve. Because things are happening, uh, judgments are happening to the point that you begin to wonder, 
Is God still in control? Is all of this now because Satan and the Antichrist have taken over and now where's God? So God gives a reprieve and God in that reprieve, he sends forth 144,000 Jewish evangelists. In that reprieve, he sends forth two witnesses, which we're going to study next week. In that reprieve, he sends forth an angel who flies over the earth pronouncing the grace, the gospel of God. He's, to, he's shoring up, and before the next bad series, he's shoring up his saints. Amen. <laughs> he's strengthening his saints. Those saints, some will die a martyr's death. Some will live. He will seal them to be there until the return of Christ. They'll live through the entire seven years. But whether you're going to live or die, I want you to understand, God is helping you. He's comforting you. He, he's with you. And so it's just a beautiful picture, this, this breath that he gives, this reprieve, this, uh, this respite. You know, he just, He's trying to, to help you. Then as we come to chapter 10, and that's from chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 14. We're in that right now, by the way. Uh, we were at chapter 11, verse 1. We enter this, this, this next interlude, this next reprieve. And we've been studying it. We studied it last week. We're going to be back in it again this week. And it's, it's, it, it's, if you say, what's the period of time? Put it in chronological order for me, okay? It's between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So he's about to release the seventh trumpet, but he give, he's giving us this chapter 10 through 11, verse 14 this reprieve. And in that reprieve, we've seen several things. Can you remember what they are? What have we seen the last uh, few verses? What has he talked about? Anything at all? The little scroll. I'm sorry? The little scroll. The little scroll. Bitter and stuff. Yes. What else? What have we seen? Have we not learned about the 144,000 witnesses on the earth from the 12... Uh, from the 12 tribes of Judah, 12,000 from each tribe. These are the reprieves. These are the, the comforts. Now, I'm going to cover that in just a moment more, more in depth because sometimes we look at some of these reprieves and we think, okay, okay, a reprieve, that, that happened. No. But we don't really see the significance personally, why that was a big deal. What was the significance behind it? We're going to cover that. But I want you to remember this, that... Uh, by the time the people get to this point in the sixth trumpet, they have, this is what they've experienced. I want to put you in context now. Yourself. Think about yourself being in this situation. By the time you get to this point in Scripture where God's revealing this vision to John, they've already experienced a false peace on the earth. They thought it was real peace. It turned out to be uh, war. It led to wars. They've experienced famine, earthquakes, pestilence, death, vengeance, they, they, they've, they've begun to experience the collapse of the universe. And when I use these words, every one of these things have already happened. Famine, war, earthquake, pestilence, death, vengeance. We've already seen that, but not to this degree. Now the seventh seal is opened and the seven trumpet judgments come. And here's what they include. We've covered this. The destruction of one-third of the earth. A third. 
One-third of the seas and the creatures in the sea. One-third of the ships that are on the earth. One-third of the fresh water. Some people say, well, I'm a, I'm a freshwater guy. Yeah, go ahead and take out a third of the sea. It doesn't bother me one bit. And then right after that, God, God follows up with the fresh water being contaminated. A third. And then one-third of the sun and a third of the moon and the release of demons that have been bound up in the pit for centuries, now they are released by God to torment men on the earth. And if that's not enough, they are followed by an army, get this now, of 200 million hellish minions of, of Satan. God releases this on the earth. These guys have been locked up somewhere in the Euphrates area, the scripture says, and they come and they kill one-third of all mankind with fire and brimstone and smoke. So when you put yourself in that context of these things that have already happened, and now there's a reprieve, and you have an angel flying around announcing, pronouncing that God is good, God is just in what he's doing, that he's still in control, what does that do for you? It gives you hope. I can make it through this. Satan is not in control. God is still in control. It reminds you to go back to the scripture where you see that God would allow Satan to look like he's in control. But God is the one who's actually releasing these minions, 200 million of them. He's releasing these demonic forces that have been locked up for centuries. God is doing all that. And it gives you hope to hold on. So as bad as this is, then the seventh trumpet blows. The seven bowls are now instantly poured out. The picture of a bowl, again, is that it holds more and it's just dumped. Um, when this happens, whatever you experienced before will seem insignificant to what's happening now and to what's going to happen. So this brief interlude ordained by God is to comfort and strengthen the believers still on the earth before all hell breaks loose. Now, then we come into chapter 11. We're still on the reprieve right now up until verse 14. We come into chapter 11 where John is told that he must prophesy again concerning many people and nations and tongues and kings. The end is near, but there's more for John to write down, namely the fact that the worthy one, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is coming to redeem his own. He's coming to condemn those who refused him. But John and his pen are not the only witnesses of this event. Okay, Again, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Then you've got all those who are saved by them, which are multitudes, John saw in heaven, multitudes during the tribulation that are saved, Gentiles and Jews that have come to Christ. This massive group of people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation who now call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile, speaking about Jesus Christ. A massive outpouring. Take everything that Billy Graham's ever done and, and uh, who's the guy that did the Jesus video? Uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. Bill, Bill, um, Bright. Bill Bright. Thank you, brother. Bill Bright. I do believe, heaven will reveal, not that we're trying to keep score because God's not really into that, right? But I, I, th I don't know that anybody has won more souls to Christ than the ministry through Bill Bright, including Billy Graham and whoever else. Uh, that Jesus video has been seen all over the globe. They say over, over 2 billion people have seen that video. Wow. 
people have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we did the video, we did that Jesus video in Palm Beach County when I was still pastoring there. A group of churches came together. We raised, uh, raised $1.3 million. We put that video in every home in the county. At that time, it was 450,000 homes. And we put it in every language necessary. And, uh, and so we had a, we had a at the, after we put it out, we, right before we put it out, we had a huge gathering of the body of Christ. We rented the amphitheater down at the fairgrounds. Remember that? Were you yes. there? Yes. Your pastor, Tom Peters, I love Pastor Peters. He's a prince of pastors. We were all there together, pastors and stuff. And uh, I, I'm getting chills right now. And we invited Bill Bright to That's come and awesome. speak, and he came. He said to that crowd, he said, this is the greatest uh, outpouring uh, within the United States borders of the Jesus video. Amen. And awesome. And I led the, uh, the follow-up committee. We saw 7,000 people make public profession of faith in Jesus Christ because of that video alone that we know of, that responded. So, so Bill Bright, interestingly enough, I'm just kind of taking you somewhere here before we get into the, te the, the teeth of this. I, I just want you to see the gospel going forth and what it can do and how much more is going to be done in the tribulation. So, so Bill Bright, when he met his wife, I forget her name now, um, they started dating, they decided to get married, and before they were wed, they sat down and wrote out a handwritten contract, and they said this, from this day forward, we are slaves of Jesus Christ together made that commitment. And that man, through his ministry, over two billion people, and that was back 15, 18 years ago, over two, it's probably three billion now, have seen that video. Who knows how many countless lives have come to Christ. And I'm gonna tell you something, that's nothing compared to the outpouring of the gospel of Christ by the Holy Spirit in the last days. That's yet to come. I wanna be part of that. Yes. Some say, oh, no, I'm a premillennialist. I'm getting out of here before that happens. <laughs> and I, I'm a premillennialist. I believe that the church will be raptured. I'll be honest with you. It excites me to stay here and to be part of that, to pour myself out and see thousands upon thousands come to Jesus Christ that before would have rejected him without even thinking twice. Because <clears throat> we all know what it is to be rejected as we share the gospel, right? Right? Mm -hmm. You should have that experience in your life. Peter said, if you haven't had that experience, you're not really saved. How can you be a Christian and not be persecuted? That's what he basically said. You've got to be persecuted for Christ's sake. It goes with the territory. It's like when I got persecuted for preaching the gospel by a group of folks. Uh, I get a, I get a, a call from uh, a local guy who's a Christian. Um, I won't give his name, but he, he runs a very big event here in our town once a year. And he called me up, Greg, how you doing? Oh, my goodness, brother, I'm, I'm under a lot of persecution right now. I'm really, it's been kind of tough the last few weeks and months. And I'm, he goes, praise God, hallelujah. <laughs> Man, he put me in a whole different perspective. And he's right. Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. You're blessed. Stop bellyaching. Stop whining like a little kid. Wah, wah. Jesus said, you should be happy. 
when they treat you the way they treated me. If they, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And, and so it's so important that we grasp the role that God's given us in these last days. And I think it's going to get a lot worse than what we're seeing now. You say, oh my goodness, how can it get worse? Are you kidding me? Our brothers and sisters in Christ have seen a lot worse than what we're experiencing all over the globe. We've just been privileged. We've been blessed. And I'm not even sure if it's a blessing anymore. Quite honestly, I think a little persecution needs to come our way. And probably a lot more is going to come. But what it'll do is, like, like somebody said, you know, we were, we were watching the, the scene conference. Who was it that spoke? And uh, I don't think it was Alistair Begg. It might have been, well, anyway. They said, oh, no, it was uh, uh, Tripp. What's his name? Lee. Tripp Lee. No. No, no, no. Paul, Paul, Paul David Tripp, and he said, uh, you know, we walk around and we're like, uh, you know, life's been so easy for me. I've grown so much in the Lord because life's been so easy. You ever heard somebody say that? <laughs> Never. What do they say? Life's been so tough, so hard lately. But boy, have I been growing in the Lord. We can stand it for a little more in our personal lives. And here we are as Christians trying to stay away from it all, trying to... Oh, please, don't come to my door. That's not the way our God works. Amen. This is like a different sermon. I'm not even getting into the stuff that I came to preach. So, but in addition, they also see the multitudes that are preaching. The 144,000 are preaching. This supernatural act of this angel who flies around heaven preaching the everlasting gospel. And that's not all. Right in the very first of the last days, as all of these judgments unfold in the Great Tribulation, there will be two more very unique evangelists, and they're going to be preaching in the end time, and we meet them here in chapter 11. Not tonight, though. <laughs> so uh, let's start with chapter 11, verse 1. We'll just go to the first four verses, but we won't make it that far. We'll just probably cover the first two, okay? Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. This is John. Remember, there was once before where John entered into the vision that he had. And God told him to take a little scroll and eat it. Remember that? Yeah. And now he's going to enter in again. I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And then he says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So he, he just gives two verses about something about, let's get the measure, the measurement of the temple, and then he goes right into the two witnesses where he covers that for a majority of the chapter. You've got to be wondering, okay, why did he just say, what was the significance of mentioning these, the temple in two verses? What's the significance of telling John to grab the rod and start measuring out the temple of God and the people who gather in it. What's that all about? Why would he do that? And so when people read this chapter, they, they just look past that. They read it, they go, okay. And then they get into the witnesses. Because that's the exciting stuff, the witnesses. I'm telling you, I fed on verse 1 and 2. And I'm excited to share it with you tonight. In case you're wondering, these aren't ordinary men, by the way, these two witnesses. We're going to cover it next week, but... They've been endowed with supernatural ability. And look at verse 5, what it says about these two witnesses who are going to be released. It says, and if anyone would harm them, fire, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. 
Lord, let me be one of the two that come back. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Somebody coming up against you, just fire comes out of your mouth and consumes them. <laughs> They're gone. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. So God's given them this supernatural ability. He's, 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 in, he's given them power beyond what we on this earth have. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, that's very important. When they have finished the work for which God put them on the earth, then the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. I hope you heard that verse. When God is finished with us on this earth, we die. It is appointed unto every man to die once and then the judgment. But we die when God's done with us, not before. It is not our place to end our life before the Lord is ready to take us. Amen. God has a work for his people on this earth. It is wrong for a Christian to take their own life. It's wrong for anybody to take their life. And I do understand that there are people who are not in their right mind when they do that. I understand that. But if you're in your right mind and you do that for selfish reasons, and, and it has to be selfish reason, uh, you, are, you are literally taking yourself out of the will of God for what he wanted you to do. These two witnesses were brought down, endued with power by God, or not brought down. These two are here on the earth, empowered by God to do his work. And then once, it says here, once they have finished their what? Testimony. Once they finish the test, who knows when that is? It's not like you go, okay, I'm gonna, I, if I, once I hit my quota of 100 people that I bring to Jesus, then I'm done with my test. No, no, you don't know how many people God wants you to reach. That's why every day you ought to be sharing the gospel. These guys are out every day just sharing their testimony. And there is a difference between the word witness and the word testimony. And there it is right there. Once they, not, not once they finish their witness. Listen, witness is who you are. You are a witness. Testimony is what you share. It's what comes out of you. You say, why are you making that distinction? I'll tell you why. Very simple. A pastor long enough to know that most Christians will say to me, Pastor, I just don't have that gift of sharing the gospel. That's just not me. So I share with people just by my actions alone. No, what you're telling me is I'm a witness, but I'm not a testimony. I don't share a testimony. And that's false. You are a witness. Everything you do, everywhere you go, people are watching. You ought to be a witness for Christ. But then you open your mouth and you share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every Christian is called to that. That's not a gift. Now, there are people who have gifts of speaking. They can speak better than others. There's people who have uh, boldness that others don't have. But, but what did they do in, in the book of Acts? They were warned not to share the message of Jesus any longer. They go back to the saints that were gathered in the home. They prayed. Here's what they prayed. Lord, we pray for boldness. And after they finished praying, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they went out of that house with boldness. So it's not about you having a gift of boldness. It's about you praying for boldness. Mm -hmm. And get on with being a witness and sharing your testimony for Jesus. Amen? Amen.
hope the point's been made. Let's move forward. Um, so these guys are just doing the work of God. And they're going to come to a closing. And it says in verse 8, And their bodies, after they're taken, after they're conquered by uh, the enemy, uh, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom, Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from peop the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the, these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So you know, the greatest hum humility or, or, or uh, uh, the greatest torment to any person who's killed is that they would take your body and leave it out there lying open on the, on the street or anywhere where it decays. You'd want to be put in a grave, right? You want to be, or, or take me to a, to a kiln and light me up, you know, what's something. But to be left out there, you talk about a humiliating experience for family and others who knew you, to see your body laying out there. The whole earth is going to see it for three days. They're going to be laying out in the open, on the street. And people shouting, running around rejoicing because these guys are gone. You'd rejoice too if you were a sinner and these guys were striking you down with fire. Yeah. Once they're gone, you're happy. Somebody said that someone actually made a, bird, a Christmas card and used this passage about everybody sharing gifts for Christmas. Talk about a misappropriation of a, of a text. Good grief. It says right here, it says, those on the earth will dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. That was, that's what was on the, the, the Christmas card. you got to be kidding me. But look at this, verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. By the way, the whole earth is going to see them laying on the street dead for three days. Because satellite, right? We can, we can see anything happening anywhere live, right? And this is going to be a big deal because these guys have brought havoc all over the earth as they shared the gospel. People are angry and mad. Kill them and nobody can kill them. And they're being killed. And then finally they die and the whole earth is like shouting, woo! And then all of a sudden, three days later, God breathes breath back into these two witnesses. And great fear falls on everybody who saw him. They, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them. Man, oh man. Wow. How can you, how can you deny God after seeing that? You've got to be pretty hard. Those guys are not your ordinary bears, right? <laughs> so even with all the judgments slamming the earth and its inhabitants, it's just like our God to still have these moments, these, these reprieves where he puts his grace on display, trying to help us come to the gospel, even in the midst of judgments. So all through the judgments, God has sent those who are preaching the gospel, warning, calling men to repentance and faith in Christ, and they keep doing that right up until the end. This is a wonderful comforting truth for you and for me, to know that our God never quits. He's a graceful God. Now, his grace will not wipe out his judgment. 
he's just. And to just say, oh, just let it go, don't worry about it. He ceases to be a just judge if he does that. He had to send Jesus to fulfill the requirement of the law. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. That's right. And so now, that just judge is able to provide grace even when his justice is being served. Praise God for that. Amen? Amen. So, uh, before we look at these two witnesses, though, we need to focus on these first two verses. So let's go back again. Verse 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the, temp the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So John had a lot of visions, and every once in a while he got into the vision, and here he gets brought into the vision where he's the one that's going to do the measuring. Uh, I don't think this is God speaking to him. I think it's probably an angelic being that is speaking to John these things um, because otherwise I think he would say it was God. He would say it was Christ, the Lamb. Uh, so here he's told to take this measuring rod, and he says specifically, rise up, measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now immediately, immediately you think, okay, the altar has to be the altar of incense, which is in the Holy of Holies. And we're going to see whether or not that's true in just a second. But here's the more important question first. Why is he doing this? Why is he called to measure the temple and the altar and the people who dwell in it? There are two reasons for God to measure. Number one is judgment, and number two is ownership. In the Old Testament, God measures his judgments. There's actually scripture that speaks of that. Why would he measure? So that, it, that the judgment doesn't hit people outside of the boundary of the people he wants to, to hit. He measures a certain type of person. He measures a certain piece of land. He measures a particular city and not the neighboring city. He's very precise in his judgment being carried out. But also, this measuring rod is also used to measure uh, ownership. Ownership. Okay? Um, in the Old Testament, God measured out things as being his own, as being his personal possession. He, he would do this for the sake of preservation. I want to preserve, just like I want to judge, I want to be careful only to judge those who are guilty, but I'm also going to measure my ownership and be careful that they are preserved from judgment. This is more in line with what we see later in chapter 21 where God has the measurements of the new Jerusalem, the, the heavenly city, the holy city, where the saints will dwell forever and ever. So it's very plausible that God wants to measure out his temple because it belongs to him. He's identifying it as his own. He's telling John, this is my temple. Now remember, and we're going to put it in context in a second. I'll just hold up. I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to hold off because it's really interesting. Very, very good stuff. Uh, but the, the inference here is that I want you to rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. John is being told to define the parameters of God's property and who it is that belongs to him. It's more the idea of God measuring off Israel for some protective, preserving, favored position in the end. At the end. We might still not get the significance of what I just read to you from that verse, but if we put ourselves in John's shoes, it all of a sudden comes alive for us. 
I want you to remember now that John's, from his perspective, just 25 years earlier, Jerusalem, the holy city, was leveled. The temple of God, where people brought sacrifice and offered the grain offering, it was leveled by the Romans. I want you to know that we're talking about a period of time in John's life where he knew of 985 towns that were destroyed by the Romans. Okay? This was a time in John's life when over a million Jews were massacred by the Romans. All of this in his lifetime. He's in heaven, God's giving a vision, and God's telling him, I want you to measure the temple, the altar, and those who are in it. There is no temple. Can you imagine being John in that moment, realizing that God has a temple? God's going to build a temple. Whew. Keep in mind also that Antichrist has already desecrated the temple. He's already largely involved in the massacre of Jewish people because the tribulation's already started. But at the same time, 144,000 Jews are witnessing. Uh, 17, uh, 12,000 from each tribe. But also, get this, uh, you've got all the multitudes of Jews and Gentiles that were saved by those 144,000. And, and by the angel who's flying above the earth. This massive outpouring of God's, God's gospel on the earth. Paul said in Romans 11, 25 through 27, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in, in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So there's coming a future time that John's, John is learning about where God is not finished with Israel. John's very aware that God was judging the Jews when he allowed the Romans to destroy the temple. But yet John is now seeing the grace of God again. That God is not done. He's not done with, with his hope, with his chosen, holy, and dearly loved. So what's God saying in this verse? I'm measuring out protection and favor over my people. Not necessarily a temporal protection, because many of them are going to die a martyr's death, but eternal protection. The word, this is interesting, the word temple here in this text, it refers, it's the word naos, it refers to the inner temple, the holy of holies and the holy place. This is important. Uh, then he adds the altar. So the holy of holies, and then he adds the altar. And I think it's not the incense, the altar of incense, which is in the Holy of Holies, it's, or the holy place. It's actually the brazen altar where they made sacrifices. Okay? And you say, well, how, what gives you confidence in that? Because the people never entered into that holy cult of holies. They always stayed out where the brazen altar was. That's where the sacrifices were made. And he said, I'm measuring the temple, I'm measuring the altar, and those who are in it. Okay? The people didn't go in it. The people stayed outside of it. 
and now all of a sudden he's 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 bringing that incense or the uh, the brazen altar into the picture. So when he says measure the temple, he means the holy place and the holy of holies, the brazen altar where the people could go to express their worship and offer their sacrifices. And those who worship in it, who would that be? Well, obviously it's the Jews, right? It would be the Jews in the time of great tribulation. This implies, here's what, here's what he's saying to John, that in this tribulation period, now remember, what John's experiencing is a future look. He's looking at, he's in heaven, and he's seeing what God's going to do in the tribulation. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. And now, John knows that there's going to be a temple during the tribulation on the earth. Right now in Jerusalem, there is no temple. Ever since Herod's temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they've never rebuilt another temple. But don't think for a moment that the Orthodox Jews do not want a temple rebuilt. They've already laid the groundwork with the supplies. I challenge you to go on your website, Google, and Google Orthodox Jews and and building the temple. You will be blown away. They're going to the point that the Orthodox Jews are raising up the young boys to know how to make animal sacrifice according to the Old Testament law in the temple. Right now, that's happening in Jerusalem. They are preparing because, see, Messiah to them never came. So they still think that they need to have the, the, when, when did God ever take away the, the practice of animal sacrifice? He didn't. The Day of Atonement never changed. The Jews changed that. The Most Jews today are only Jews by birth, by heritage. They've, they're in love with the traditions, but they don't see it as a practice. The Orthodox, Orthodox Jews do. They want that to be practiced but not the rest of the Jews, which is the majority of Jews on the earth today. But I'm going to tell you right now, a time's coming where, the, where the, the, those other Jews, they're going to see it. And, and that temple's going to be built, and they're going to be rushing back to Jerusalem to worship God the way they have worshipped him in the past. I think that is what triggers the Antichrist to go into the temple, wipe out the Jews, cast them out of the temple, and go in and offer an unholy sacrifice to God and declare that he is God and demand that the rest of the world worship him as God. I think that's what triggers it because he sees the Jews, Jews from all over the earth, pouring back towards Jerusalem because the temple's been rebuilt and they're actually making sacrifice again. And he realizes they are worshiping God. I've I got to stop this nonsense. I'm God. His pride and arrogance can't keep him from setting that up. And, of course, that falls right into the trap of what God designed, right? This is all according to God's plan. So those who worship in it, who would, who would that be? It's the Jews, okay? This is why Bible scholars believe there will be a rebuilding of the temple during the tribulation. It might happen right before the tribulation. But here's what we know. That in the first three and a half years of the seven-year tri tribulation, we know that Antichrist makes covenant with the Jews. And he does it for peace. And so he probably, in that, in that contract, that peace pact that he provides that nobody else could have done, he allows them to rebuild the temple. Mm -hmm. They don't need to take years to build it. They can set up walls quick. Mm -hmm. It can be a more temporary structure that they can begin to use. 
If you remember, they had a tent in the Old Testament, and God saw it as sufficient to make sacrifice to him. And so they could set it up pretty quick. And so th this is what the, the scholars really, uh, many of them, not all. And again, I, I don't have 100% uh, clarity on this at all. But I believe this is true, and I believe I have a lot of scripture to share with you that kind of shows you that the temple, there is a temple during the tribulation, the first half of the tribulation. In fact, Matthew 24, 2 says, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So for 25 years, I mean, John has seen an extinct land, no temple. Jesus said it was going to happen. John's remembering that because he knew Jesus pretty well, wouldn't you say? He remembers those words, and that's exactly what happened. So when he's told to go and measure the temple of God, it must have struck him that the prophecy of history is true. And, and let me give you some prophecy that speaks of a future temple, okay? Now, I'll, I'll be the first to say to you that I believe that primarily most of this uh, prophecy speaks of the millennial temple. In other words, when Christ returns and builds his temple, right? I believe it, it does speak to that. But I also believe it speaks to an earthly temple in the tribulation. I'll show you why. Amos, Amos 9.11, the prophet Amos, in talking about the end times and the salvation of Israel, he said, in that day I will raise up my, the fallen booth of David. That means the house of David. And wall up, and wall up its branches, or its breaches. And I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and the people will stream to it. The prophet is saying a temple is coming. In Haggai 2.9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I shall give peace. In other words, I'm going to, to build a greater house sometime in the future than what you have now. Another prophecy worth mentioning is Zechariah 6, 12 through 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, who is that? The Messiah. Mm -hmm. For he will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. I believe that is about the millennial. So the prophets were always looking to a future temple. In reality, most of these prophetic references looked at the temple Messiah would build. But when John was alive, he would only anticipate generally that a future temple was to be built. And there in the vision in Revelation, God is measuring a future temple out, of, out for his protection. Again, just for clarification, the temple which John is measuring in our text is, the, is I believe, plausible that it's a temple uh, during the tribulation, which is different than the one coming in the millennial reign of Christ. A great question might be, are there any direct references in the Bible of a tribulation temple? I believe the answer is yes. Let me take you to one. You go to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Let me just read it for you. We have a familiar prophecy of the coming of the Antichrist. Now he's talking about a specific period in time during the time of Antichrist. And it says when the Antichrist comes, he'll make a path with Israel for one week. That's, that's for seven years. And in the middle of the week, that's three and a half years. Antichrist will put an end. This is in Daniel. And halfway through, he will put an end to sacrifice and grain offering. 
Now, how would he do that in the tribulation unless there was a temple? Because there's no other place that the Jews were allowed to offer sacrifice and grain offering. It has to be a temple. If during the week of the tribulation the Antichrist stops the sacrifice and grain offering, there has to be a temple during the first half of the tribulation because there's no other legitimate place to offer it. Now, interestingly enough, uh, under this pact with Antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation, the Jews will be given the freedom to worship in their own temple. Three and a half years. At, at the three and a half year mark, he will stop that worship and will do what is called the abomination of desolations. He will move into the temple, desecrate it, throw the Jews out, and Antichrist himself will slaughter false animals offered to him as a false god. He will desecrate the temple. But to do that, there has to be a temple. Right? Reinforcing this. Look at Daniel. If you want, you can turn, but I'm going to move quick. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. Write it down. Daniel 12, 11. We find a similar kind of indication that God is going to be involved in letting them restore a temple. And here's what it says, quote, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is, is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But he's saying from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, in other words, it's abolished halfway through the seven-year period. So it has to be going on prior to that. They have a temple. In the New Testament, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15. He indicates that there must be a temple in the last days. Why? Because he quotes Daniel, who just said that there is one. In verse 15 of chapter 24, you will see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet. So Jesus is actually affirming what Daniel said, and Daniel said there will be a time of sacrifice made for three and a half years. But probably the scripture in the New Testament speaks with the greatest clarity regarding uh, tribulation temple is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. It says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Who is that? Antichrist, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So what I'm saying to you is, there is going to be a temple rebuilt. If you notice right now, where they say that the temple should go is what? The second greatest Muslim uh, attraction, the Dome of the Rock, right? And, uh, but here's what we know. Um, those archaeologists who have really studied, they say that they believe that the Dome of the Rock is actually sitting in the outer court area. It's not sitting where the temple was. It's in the outer court. And interesting, in this text that we studied, God said, I want you to measure the temple, the brazen altar. I want you to measure the people who are in it. But don't measure the outer court. It's been given over to the Gentiles. In fact, go back and look at your text. What does it say? Revelation chapter 11. What verse are we in? Look what he says. Measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that 
out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Wow. So the past, this passage in Thessalonians really explains why the abomination is taking place. It's the Antichrist who makes a pact, and he is the one who puts everything in place. And then, of course, he goes in the temple and he, abom and he abominates it. So not only do these scriptures tell us that there are prophecies in the Old Testament about the millennial reign or kingdom of God, where the Lord himself will establish a temple, but I believe it also speaks of the tribulation temple. Um, there, 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 were, there were five temples. Five temples the Bible speaks of. The first was built by who? Solomon, right? The second one was built by Zerubbabel. The third was built by Herod. That's the one that stood when Jesus was walking the earth. It was knocked down in 70 AD. The fourth temple is the tribulation temple that the Jews build. I think it's a temporary temple. I think it's a, it's a, it's a quick build. And then uh, the last temple is the fifth one, and that's the one that Christ will build in his kingdom, his millennial kingdom. This, by the way, is the dream and the passion and the hope of Orthodox Jews today. They just don't think Messiah's come yet. That's the problem. All right. Closing it down. Uh, so the practice of the law is nothing more than a shadow. And the Jews are going to go back to the practicing of the law. In fact, in Romans chapter 11, it says, yes, so all Israel will be saved. That's interesting. God's speaking of the Jews, and he says in chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. So there's going to come a time in the end where Israel, many, many Jews will turn to Jesus Christ. What sets that up? What triggers that? I'll tell you what it does. The law. The Orthodox Jews set up a temple, and the Jews are so excited because there's world peace. They go back, and they see the significance of the offering and the, burnt, or the sacrifice, and they start worshiping God again. And that triggers Antichrist to go in and commit the abomination of desolations. Just fascinating to me. It was the law in the Old Testament that God gave us as what? A shadow to point us to the substance, Jesus Christ. And once again, at the end, it will be the law that the Jews turn to. And God will show them the substance of the law through great persecution. And they will turn to Jesus Christ. Is that not awesome? Amen. Praise God. In chapter 13, verse 14 of Revelation, it says, And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded, by the sword and yet lived, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. In other words, you either worship the beast in that period of time or you die. But the institution of Judaism, once again, God's going to use it through temple worship to bring people to a point to fulfill what Zechariah the prophet said. Let me give it to you. Chapter 12, verse 10, Zechariah. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy 
so that when they look on me, on him, on him whom they have pierced, this is following, this is after the crucifixion of Christ, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimon in the plague of Megiddo, plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, and so on. He goes down to verse thir uh, chapter 13, verse 1. So the, if you wanted that verse again, I just read to you, Zechariah 12, 10 through, 10 through 14. Then a couple verses later, you go into chapter 14, I'm sorry, chapter 13, and verse 1 says this, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. I believe that's going to happen, folks. I believe it's going to be awesome when it happens. Zechariah chapter 13, look further down, verse 8. What it says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off. Two-thirds two of Jews will die. They're going to perish. And one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. And they will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. <laughs> so God, I believe, is measuring out the temple because he plans to preserve the Jews in the end. Isn't that exciting? Yes. Amen. We've got a message to carry to the world. I'll tell you that. Aren't you glad we didn't skip right over the first two verses and get into the witnesses? <laughs> We're going to cover them next week, and I'm not sure we'll get it all done in one week, but we'll try our best to get through chapter 11, okay? Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the time that we've had in your word to really begin to understand and have insight, possibly, into your plan for what you've been doing and what you're about to do, Lord. Lord, all of this speaks to us in this way. You have called us by your name to be your representatives on the earth. You have called us to be witnesses. It's not something we do. It's who we are. And we are called to share our testimony. That is what we do. Lord, may we be given boldness by the Holy Spirit to stand and proclaim the word without compromise. Mm -hmm. And may souls begin to pour into the kingdom of God in Jesus' name. As things get worse in our nation, oh, the gospel gets sweeter. Mm -hmm. We just need believers who will share it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Amen.